Hi, this is Matt, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who loves bluegrass. So, my guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is Ted Olson, and if you are a long-time listener to this podcast, you'd have heard Ted when we talked about Doc Watson's 100th birthday earlier in the year. Um... Ted also wrote the liner notes for the fantastic Doc Watson box set that came out recently and the liner notes, the essay that came with uh, Nothing But Green Wellow, which we talked about on the podcast a couple of months ago as well. So Ted has been featured on this many times already. Ted, it's great to have you back. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Matt. It's always always good to hear what you have to say about uh, music. And, and I learn every, something every time I hear your podcast. So thank you. Oh, well, that's very kind. It's a joy doing them. Um, and we've got a really interesting topic today. We've got a topic that I think is something people will be familiar with, but is actually a jumping off point to explore something much wider. And that is sort of the Bristol sessions, but not just the Bristol sessions on their own. The Bristol sessions as part of a much wider context of recording that was going on in the Appalachian region around that time. And I think I think maybe the interesting point to start at is that Lots of people will have heard the Bristol Sessions described as the big bang of country music and this idea that sort of country music as we know it originated at the Bristol Sessions. And one of the things, what sort of kicked off these this conversation we're having today was uh, three Bear Family box sets, but also a single CD highlights from each, which look at the Bristol Sessions, but also the Johnson City Sessions and the Knoxville Sessions and this idea that people were recording commercial music in Appalachia around 100 years ago, and it was part of a much bigger thing that was going on, not just one particular set of sessions. Uh, yes. Um, you mentioned the adage, or, or the, um, I, I sometimes refer to it as jargon, the big bang of country music. Um, you know, I've, I've learned to have my quarrels with that particular slogan um, in the last 25 years as I've pursued research of the Bristol Sessions. Um, frankly, country music was launched as a commercial music form in 1923, and it took off very quickly, and there were millions selling records by 1924. So even as I've explored the history of the Bristol Sessions, I've quarreled with that notion. And it's it's an interesting kind of uh, uh, paradox, I guess, is that I believe so strongly in those records and those artists but I challenge the notion of their supremacy in, in our in our musical evolution. Um, it's often said, uh, a friend of mine who contributed an essay to a book I wrote on the Bristol session said, uh, it, it would make many of the artists who recorded in Bristol in 1927 and 1928, it would make them wince to think in terms of evolutionary theory and what they were doing. They were recording their home music uh, in in a studio, makeshift studio in Bristol, Tennessee, and it had nothing to do with big bangs or or birthplaces. It had to do with a heartfelt sharing of their community music and their own music. And in some cases, it was it was handmade music. And I feel as if it's almost dishonoring uh, the Bristol Sessions heritage to confuse the issue. So. Moving forward, I mean, I've been studying this for 25 years alongside Charles Wolfe and then Tony Russell, is that I feel as if 
getting beyond the slogans or the jargon um, to the heart of the matter is that great music was recorded in Bristol in 1927 and 1928, even revolutionary music. But revolutionary music, great music had been recorded from 1923 forward. And, um, you know, I'm honestly working on projects as we speak to try to bring those older stories, the pre-1927 stories, uh, to the public's uh, attention. So um, probably it's important to talk about that up front so that, uh, you know, people aren't considering everything that happened after Bristol as somehow a letdown because I don't view it that way at all. I'm, I'm as big a fan of the Johnson City sessions and the Knoxville sessions as I am of the Bristol sessions. And honestly, I think they were equally influential, just in different ways. Yeah, and it's I think some some of it is that um, like we tend to like some sort of creationist myth when it comes to art. Like, you know, we like the idea that Bill Monroe was single-handed responsible for bluegrass and we like the idea that, you know, there's a, a one genius behind things. And as always, it's a visionary person at the right time surrounded by other people. And, you know, and, and that was, I think that was a really interesting thing coming into this conversation about um, all these sessions for me. Because I'd heard the Bristol Sessions recordings before, some of them, and like listening back to, you know, tracks are recorded nearly 100 years ago. I sort of saw them almost as museum pieces and like an interesting curiosity and going back through this, um, I, I haven't had the full box sets, but I've listened to the single CD sort of distillations of each of those sessions and read the essays and read the liner notes and sort of getting into the context of it all. So it's not just one set of Bristol sessions, but all these other recordings and what was going on in the world at that point. And it just brings it to life so much. And I found myself like just transported back. And I'm, I don't feel like I'm listening to history. I just feel like I'm listening to music and the all the accompanying stuff is so it's so fascinating and it's something that you miss when you just stream something well bear family records of course deserves a lot of the credit for the marvelous masters that are included in these projects because they sought out this uh, this great uh, mastering engineer this uh, sound engineer uh, marcus human and he's the one responsible for the terrific sound on the Bristol Sessions single CD release and also the Knoxville Sessions single CD release. Before that, it was Christian Svarg, and he's also an acclaimed sound engineer in, in Germany. Uh, so Bear Family uh, Records identified these mastering engineers, uh, put them to work, put them to the task of seeking out, well, we helped with the process of seeking out the records, but then the mastering engineer took over um, made digital streams or mid- uh, digital versions of old, dusty, sometimes extremely well-loved 78 RPM uh, discs and converted them to the glorious sound that we hear today that uh, I agree with you, Matt. Uh, those recordings sound like they could have been recorded yesterday. Um, they don't seem historical. They don't seem dusty or antiquated. And uh, that is definitely a credit to the science of sound engineering. Um, but let's also say, and to be honest, some of the artists who recorded in, say, Bristol or Johnson City or Knoxville uh, were ahead of their time. And, and stylistically, they've, they've founded sounds that artists subsequently uh, learned from and, and in some cases copied. I'm referring, of course, to the Carter family and 
and Jimmy Rogers and and uh, Clarence Ashley on the Johnson City sessions and and uh, Howard Armstrong in the Knoxville sessions. These are some of the greatest Appalachian artists of the last hundred years, certainly. And uh, so, you know, their music, their records sound pristine because of the sound engineering, but the performances sound like they could be heard today anywhere across the world where roots music from the United States is beloved. We could hear those types of uh, performances, those those stylistic interpretations of, of old songs simply because of the long shadows cast by people such as Jimmy Rogers, the Carter family, uh, Clarence Ashley or Howard Armstrong or many others. And yeah. So it's, it's very much the case for me too, is when I hear these single CD releases or the box sets that spawn them, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting squarely in the present day, hearing music that seems relevant in the present moment. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like it's some musty, dusty historical document. It, it, it very much seems like a living presence. And in all honesty, one of the great uh, pleasures and, and, and uh, uh, consequences of all this work over the last quarter of a century in trying to bring these stories to the public is that uh, the communities that originally spawned these recording sessions have also embraced uh, this music and this legacy and these stories as being relevant in the present day, and uh, so that's uh, th- that's very gratifying for the you know the scholar you know the scholarly endeavor uh, that was undertaken uh, by by a number of us. I mean, you know, have to give credit where credit is due. People like Charles Wolfe and Nolan Porterfield and and Tony Russell and and not to leave any names out, but those are three principal. Uh, you know, titans of scholarship that uh, made my work possible. Um, but, uh, you know, everyday folk in Bristol, Johnson City and, and Knoxville now know this music and, and uh, they have these records in their collections and listen to them on a, you know, if not daily, a weekly basis. And Bear Family Records has not made any of this music available to my awareness through streaming platforms. So they, they want people to engage with these high quality transfers in, in, in kind of uh, pristine form and you know, the mm. high quality digital uh, CD releases with liner notes and design work and, and uh, you know, the, the full kind of curation effect. So um, that is very much in the, in the planning from uh, Bear Family Records is to make this music something that we sit down and, and listen carefully to what's happening in the albums as opposed to listening to them passively in, as background music. It's very much meant to be kind of music that uh, is epochal and, and, and culture shaping. And, and uh, so, and yet it also is fun. I, a lot of the music is, is, is delightfully um, entertaining and, uh, you know, not something that one necessarily has to listen to with, you know, the, the peak of reverence. I mean, sure, we listen to it with great reverence, but we also, um, you know, feet start tapping. And, and and I know a lot of people who dance to this music. I mean, they put on the records and they dance around the house. So um, it, it's, it's uh, music that lives and breathes in the 21st century, even if it is very close to being 100 years old from the time it was recorded. And I think there's one track that... Um... I, the first time I'd heard it, I think it was the 
Blind Alfred Re record Virginian, and it's just fiddle and, and voice, and the the sort of the presence of that sound. I wasn't prepared for how because it's preceded by um, a kind of group vocal track where there's a lot of people in the room being captured by one microphone, and there's this big sound, and then all of a sudden you've got this very intimate fiddle and vocal such a breadth of sound and such a sort of, it's like you're sitting in a room with somebody playing you a song. Um, and it's astonishing. And I think, I guess part of that goes, well, we're lucky that these sessions were recorded with like, I guess what was a pretty new electrical microphone at that point, rather than the traditional acoustic horn. So they were able to capture a much bigger breadth of stuff. And so it has translated. That's exactly right. That's one of the reasons why the Bristol Sessions recordings and then the Johnson City Sessions, you know, one year later, Knoxville Sessions two years later, uh, late 1920s into 1930, why this uh, East Tennessee recorded uh, music sounds so fresh is because it was recorded electronically. Uh, the microphone system was new at starting in about 1926. And so it was introduced right at the vanguard of these uh, recording sessions. Recordings made in 1925 and 24 and 23, while they were pioneering and capturing brilliant performances by people, you know, that we could mention names, Ernest Stoneman is one example of an earlier artist who also recorded at the Bristol sessions, but he was already a star from uh, 1924 forward. Henry Witter was another a country music star before he recorded in Bristol. And pe- people such as Vernon Dahlhart, who's uh, somewhat uh, overlooked or neglected today, but he was a best-selling country artist from 24 onward. Uh, some of their records from that period, 24, 25, 26, sound muffled today because of the acoustic recording process. Now, the good news about that is sound engineering in the modern sense can restore some of that sound and make kind of improve upon some of those that uh, dynamically kind of lower quality sound that uh, is associated with the acoustic recording process. But um, we can't cast out those earlier records just because the technology didn't allow them to, you know, shine at, at their optimal dynamic range because after all the performances are brilliant. So, um, but yes, the, the electronic microphone that had uh, been introduced in the mid 1920s did make possible a much more accurate sound capture. And somebody like a blind Alfred Reed, who was used to performing on the street, uh, he, he was blind and he played on the streets of S- Southern West Virginia. He was very used to that intimate exchange of music for people's attention on the street for, for coins that they would give him, that he would support his family as a street musician, among other things. He was a very talented, multifaceted individual, but he was a, a great um, uh, composer. And he brought his uh, wares, he brought his music to uh, the streets there in Princeton, West Virginia, and other places nearby. And you know that intimacy that he was used to performing on the street corners he brought into the studio. And uh, it, it's certainly powerful performances by Blind Alfred Reed, for sure, on the Bristol sessions. And then, of course, Blind Alfred Reed continued to record after Bristol um, into the late 20s and made some extremely uh, beloved, uh, you know, influential uh, sides for 78s as late as 1929 
his best known side was uh, how can a poor man stand such times and live, which of course has been covered by Ry Cooter and Bruce Springsteen and, and many others. And mm. um, he was in a essence, a, a discovery as it were, although that word's problematical because he knew who he was. He just happened to uh, be driven down to, uh, to Bristol to make records there for, yeah, right there for Ralph Peer in uh, July of 1927. Um, and so Bristol was a great kind of coincidental meeting of the minds. I mean, it wasn't necessarily set up to happen as magically as it did. It was a situation where a lot of luck intervened and Jimmy Rogers showed up and the Carter showed up and, and uh, blind Alfred Reed showed up and there, there, most of these artists were not, um, in advance kind of booked for sessions, just, they just kind of developed. Um, Ernest Stoneman was planned to perform at the Bristol sessions, but uh, uh, most everything else was kind of happenstance and serendipity. And uh, that is true magic. So, so Bristol should definitely you know, be honored for the, the, the magic that happened there. Um, but of course, magic had been happening in, in studios, you know, across the Eastern seaboard um, from the mid twenties onward. I mean, artists were going to New York city to make records. They were going to Camden, New Jersey to make records and other cities as well. And Atlanta for sure um, was another recording center in the mid 1920s. And, you know, magic was happening in those studios as well. So um, the difference about what happened in Bristol and frankly, Two years earlier, we should acknowledge Ralph Peer, the producer who made the Bristol Sessions, was, in fact, in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, and he was making records in Asheville. So those are really the first Appalachian recording sessions. And, uh, you know, the incredible recordings were being made. Sadly, the Asheville Sessions of 1925 were made acoustically, so they, they just don't have the immediacy of what happened two years later. But uh, there, there were sessions before Bristol and there were sessions after and they were all important and they're all part of the story. And um, I'm currently interested in telling those other stories beyond the three major location recording sessions that have already found their way into Bear Family projects. And so there are you know, maybe five or, or so other location recording sessions in Appalachia that uh, I'm you know, kind of pursuing to tell those stories as well in, 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 in the current moment. I'm kind of making every effort to try to create projects which release uh, those records and tell those stories through the notes. And there's a really, I think what's one of the really interesting things that runs through all of this is the phrase you used earlier, actually, you mentioned, you called them commercial recordings because there's a very big difference between these and kind of field recordings that were meant to document you know, people traveling around Appalachia, either writing songs down or recording them with early recording equipment. These were temporary, but intentionally set up recording studios intended to capture music to be sold, weren't they? Absolutely. Yes, the Bristol sessions, the Johnson City sessions, the Knoxville sessions, the Asheville sessions, the Winston-Salem sessions, the Ashland, Kentucky sessions, Norton, Virginia sessions. These are these are some of the Appalachian location recording sessions of the late 1920s. And there are, frankly, others. Um, they were, the ones I'm referring to, were all conducted by 
uh, grizzled veterans of the commercial recording industry of that era. And they were all about finding sounds that could be uh, cut and, and, and distributed on commercial discs on, you know, playback at 78 RPM and that people would be enticed to purchase for play on their own home Victrola machines. And a lot of money was changing hands in the process of enjoying this music. I should point out that money was not necessarily changing hands in the direction of the creators of the music. The artists who recorded weren't always uh, netting much, if anything, in terms of uh, uh, reimbursement or, or um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, salary for their sharing their, their talents. I mean, I hear stories of some of the artists uh, never even received a copy of the released 78, uh, you know, platter that, that was commercially available. They were never given the courtesy of being sent a copy. So some of the artists say at Knoxville, you know, they, they grew older and, and uh, only later did somebody hold a copy of their record and show it to them right. decades later. And they were mm-hmm. surprised that they, they didn't realize that uh, exactly the nature of what was happening. But I think everybody did know that records were booming by, you know, the mid twenties, seventy-eights um, were all the rage by that time. And that's why releases by Vernon Dahlhardt and uh, Ernest Stoneman were selling you know, close to a million copies in 24, 25 because of the power of the human voice in a permanent form that was ready to the command of the person seeking to be moved and entertained by that music. And it was, uh, it was the opposite, frankly, of documentary field recording, which is of course that other style of, of recording where people, you know, might think of the Lomaxes, John and Alan traveling through the country, traveling through the Southeast and beyond. Frankly, Alan went all over the world making documentary recordings of people making music within a cultural context and Alan or other field recording documentarians were much less concerned about getting something into any kind of form that would be commercially palatable to a mass market. They were much more interested in recording what spontaneously would be created within a cultural environment. That's, that's uh, maybe a bit of a generalization, but uh, because somebody like an Alan Lomax was also interested in the commercial market in a way and converted field recordings into commercial songs, think in terms of, some of Lead Belly's recordings uh, became hits later on, and sometimes uh, they were credited to Alan Lomax, which is unbelievable in retrospect that the documentarian would get uh, that degree of credit for it. But that had to do with copyright and and how how, how loosely defined ownership was among people in that era. Um, and then, of course, uh, think in terms of Tom Dooley. You know, there, there's another example of a of a field recording that was made in the thirties by Frank and Ann Warner, who were documentarians, Alan Lomax then published uh, an arranged version and then was credited with kind of controlling the copyright of that song for some years after that. And of course it became a smash hit in the top 40. It was a number one hit in the fifties in the American pop charts. So that's that whole other world, but there's obviously crossover. 
because uh, you know documentarians are not necessarily completely oblivious to the kind of the the cultural you know the the, the value of what they were what they were collecting and it, it's one of the great controversies of that era in terms of who owned the rights to the music and frankly the commercial music the location recording sessions that happened in Bristol Johnson City Knoxville and these other places we had mentioned earlier even though these were overtly commercial sessions, there still was this same theme of who owned the music. There was mm. the same struggle for control of, uh, of that music. And, and one of the reasons why Ralph Peer, the mastermind of the Bristol sessions became one of the wealthiest American Americans in the entertainment industry. It's because he uh, masterminded a kind of a music industry uh, management plan, which sought to manage artists and to share, uh, you know, create a sharing arrangement with co- with the copyrighted material for commercial distribution. So uh, he benefited greatly by his associations with Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. And uh, you know, here in where I live in East Tennessee, I'm friendly with uh, some of the present day Carters and, and, and they, I wouldn't say they're bitter, but they're pretty clear about the fact is that they made historically impactful music that the Carter family did you know, 90 years ago and, and such the, the original Carter family trio and then descendants kind of kept the music alive, yeah. um, but, but it wasn't necessarily profitable to the family, the way that the copyright arrangement worked and the management arrangement worked. A lot of detail there that we probably can't go into because it's it's complex. But uh, just as a general rule, location recording sessions were concerned about commercial palatability of recordings and um, technology. There was there was an awareness that technology had advanced to such a degree with the electronic miking system and the portability of of uh, recording systems to. Uh, rural locations or to small cities near rural locations, it made possible records that would not have been made earlier, three or four years earlier, when a lot of musicians couldn't have made the trip to New York or or Camden, New Jersey, or even Atlanta. Um, Travel may have been an issue before. Um, It, you know, that was the genius of the location recording plan is to bring the recording equipment close to people where they lived. And I think that's, that's a degree to which how, how visceral the music sounds. It sounds like people making music in their home community, not, you know, kind of detached from it. So, um, you know, I'll definitely say that the location recording uh, philosophy was brilliant uh, from, shall we say, an aesthetic perspective, because it did make possible commercial recording of some vital music that was, was always produced with an eye for commercial sale, but nonetheless had a lot of energy and a lot of, of um, kind of, shall we say, authenticity to it because mm. it was coming from people who made that music every day of their lives. It was community music that was subsequently shared with the world through the medium of recorded sound. I think that's a really interesting point. And, um, the sense that I got from reading the liner notes to these three CDs was that of the three sessions, um, Bristol was perhaps the one where 
less was least was planned in advance in terms of who was going to show up. And uh, it sounds like with Knoxville and Johnson City, a bit more work had gone in in advance in terms of kind of publicising it and making sure people turned up. But the, the joy of it is if you'd booked people for any of these sessions and they'd been happening in New York, the choice of people selected would have been very different from if you can turn up, you can come and play for us. And so some of the stuff that is on these records is on them because they were recorded in those locations, isn't it? Absolutely. The Johnson City sessions, for example, um, you, you mentioned how they were very well kind of structured in terms of advanced planning and advertisements, and that's absolutely true. Um, a few years back, there was a documentary film series called American Epic. A lot of people have seen that. Uh, one of the kind of advertisements that were utilized in newspapers to draw people into Johnson City was a slogan across the ad that was publicized in multiple newspapers around Johnson City and, and frankly beyond, which said, can you sing or play old time music? A big headline. And it was a big ad. And then below that, it gave the specifics of where you should go if you made this sort of music and if you wanted to share it. And of course, it did specify it was for the purpose of making records. And it kind of intimated that there would be money to be made, although, you know, it was not much, but it was a little. Um, that was the Columbia Records company that did that. The Bristol Sessions were made by Ralph Peer and the Victor Records company. So Columbia and Victor were kind of major rivals at the time. And that explains why Johnson City happened in kind of one year after the 27 Bristol sessions, 27 Bristol sessions created a notion that um, major artists are, you know, out there and they can be discovered by uh, companies sending their producers uh, to these locations to make commercial records in makeshift studios. The 27 Bristol sessions uh, uh, generated great records by, as we said, before uh, the Carter family, Jimmy Rogers, Blind Alfred Reed, and you know some others, and um, the folks who ran Columbia Records, specifically Frank Walker, who's another one of the titans of early re recording uh, recorded music. Um, Frank Walker was the person who first recorded Bessie Smith, so he was you know, active in the blues and jazz and Cajun as well as in country. Um, brought his recording uh, equipment to Johnson City, but was much more situated, I think, to publicize what was going on. It wasn't, you know, kind of more informal, such as the Bristol Sessions started out to be. Um, Bristol Sessions had one little uh, line embedded into a kind of a Victrola furniture company ad that there would be sessions happening in downtown Bristol on such and such a day. It would have been easy to have missed that little one single sentence. The Johnson City ad just leapt off the page of the newspaper. And American Epic uh, showed that image uh, several times within that documentary series about early recording uh, industry. So um, the Johnson City uh, approach was famously organized and you know out out in front of of the arrival of uh, the producer Frank Walker for Columbia Records and because the ad went out there by means of of newspapers and to some degree word of mouth uh, many people cite the Johnson City sessions 
as maybe the best representation of Appalachian old time music of that era, because it was, it was a, you know, it was a free for all who would show up and, and what would they bring with them? It wasn't really, you know, there wasn't an advanced sense of what would happen. There was a, a real sense of discovery there among the music recorded there. I know, I know old time music musicians today uh, who know all three of these uh, East Tennessee recording sessions and uh, a number of, folks say that their favorite in terms of the actual records made at the location session, uh, their actual favorite uh, location recording session were the Johnson city sessions because they kind of captured that old time energy, that old time sound of that era. Um, Frank Walker, the producer of the Johnson city sessions was much less interested in shaping commercial music that could be copyrighted and packaged and managed such as Ralph Peer had done in Bristol. So yeah, I guess it's, it's fair to say that Bristol um, showed the way for future country music as a commercial genre. The Johnson city sessions was all about capturing kind of the pre bluegrass community music that was being played by string bands with uh, strong vocals and, and dynamic family groups and, you know, elements of, gospel and blues and, and uh, certainly, you know, lots of old time music, a little bit of country influence in the Johnson city sessions, but it's uh, probably the biggest impact of the Johnson city sessions would have been on the Harry Smith anthology of American folk music. Cause some of the mm. major records from Johnson city are on that, that set and influenced a whole generation of folk artists, such as Bob Dylan, Jerry Garcia, Joan Baez, Judy Collins, and many others. They were, uh, they didn't realize it, but they were big fans of Johnson City Sessions rec- records because they appeared on the Harry Smith anthology. Well, that's, that's a really interesting point there because obviously the Clarence Ashley Cuckoo Bird is from the Johnson City Sessions, and that is that was one of the anthologized tracks that is you know when people think of um, kind of historic roots music, that's one of the tracks that is at the forefront of conversations. But just putting that CD on and the first track on it, tell it to me. Um, I'd never heard before, but I obviously know it as a Doc Watson song, and I know it as an old Crow Medicine Show song because it's essentially the same as Cocaine Blues, and it's that um, it's that thread that runs through all of those. And I, I was going to ask about the folk revival because uh, I know a lot of these records sold a lot at the time, and the point we're talking about is just as the Depression hit, which presumably would have affected record sales in quite a major way. And I was wondering whether these songs sort of dropped off the radar before the folk revival or whether they were always there? The Bristol sessions of 1927 predated in terms of their release schedule, predated the, the wall street crash by, by a year. So that's very fortuitous for the careers of the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers, the timing. They obviously they had great charisma and great talent. I mean, and that's what people love them for. But there was also the element of exposure. People were still buying records in in great quantity in 1928, late 27, 1928, when many of the Bristol Sessions recordings from the summer of 1927 were released. And uh, so by that fall of 27, Jimmy Rogers becomes a superstar uh, from the release of uh, Tea for Texas, Blue Yodel One, and uh, that was not recorded at Bristol, but it was an invite back by uh, by Victor and, and Ralph Peer 
because the actual record made by Jimmy Rogers in Bristol, two-sided 78, was not particularly special in some ways, musically speaking, but it did capture a charismatic performer. And so that was all that uh, Ralph Peer needed to to know that this person has lots of potential. Let's invite him to, uh, up north and where he cut, uh, you know, Tea for Texas. And of course that became his breakthrough hit. And um, some of the songs recorded by the Carters in Bristol did become uh, popular um, kind of hits. Uh, we d- we didn't have the, the the charts in the sense then, but but you know you could tell a hit by something that sold in thousands and of copies, um, and the numbers are copiously recorded in 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 you know kind of the the uh, documentary sheets for some companies. So we actually know how many records were sold of most of the Bristol sessions and most of the Johnson City sessions because major companies kept good records, um, and it's quite clear that. The 28 Johnson City Sessions recordings sold pretty well. I mean, in fact, did spawn a couple hits that sold upwards of 70,000 copies. I mean, that in the 20s, that would have been a major seller um, and sold to people at furniture stores, which was the typical outlet for 78s at the time. Um, but the, the 28 uh, Bristol Sessions recordings and particularly the 29 Johnson City sessions, which was the point at which Clarence Ashley's The Cuckoo Bird and The Bentley Boys Down on Penny's Farm were recorded in, in 29 in October of that year, was right at the emergence of, well, the beginnings of the, the Great Wall Street. I mean, Wall Street had been fluctuating for, for weeks there, but uh, the, the Great Plummet in uh, the end of that month and uh, one of the very final sessions in Johnson City coincided with Black Thursday, which was part of the, the, the great Wall, uh, Wall Street crash uh, week there. Um, so there's a story that said that a couple of the artists at the end of the 29 Johnson City sessions recording period during that uh, four-day session in uh, October of uh, 29, one of the artists remembered looking over and the sound engineer for Frank Walker was so distracted by reading the stock market reports that he wasn't kind of focused on the recording process at hand. And it was very uh, upsetting to the artist that the engineer wasn't focused, but it was because of the Wall Street crash happening as, as they spoke, and as, as they were recording. So the ultimate true fact is that the 29, which are really important recordings that were made in Johnson City, were released in 1930. And it was a depleted market. Uh, you know, the recorded sound industry was reeling and records weren't selling. And so a lot of those uh, great records from Johnson City simply kind of were manufactured in small quantities, uh, didn't sell. And we are, of course, indebted for collectors like Harry Smith and others who had copies in their personal collections and continued to keep those records kind of out there in the public. And of course the Harry Smith anthology of American folk music did its thing to popularize some of those forgotten records from the, uh, in that period of 29 onward into the thirties. But uh, so did somebody such as Doc Watson, because Doc had many of those records in his own family collection and listened to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, Doc Watson in his personal family collection had records from the Bristol sessions releases and the Johnson city 
sessions, uh, release schedule. So he listened to them, learned them, and, and made them part of his repertoire. So there was a direct connection, of course, between, say, the Bristol sessions, the Johnson City sessions, and Doc Watson. Every, every A lot of his musical inspiration came by way of those records. And then, of course, have to acknowledge the uh, the living, breathing kind of mentorship connection between Clarence Ashley and Doc Watson. They were they were friendly. They were bandmates. Uh, um, Doc was, in essence, kind of uh, discovered. Again, a word that I, I use cautiously because he knew who he was. He was a master musician long before Ralph Rinsler, you know, saw him there in, in uh, at uh, that uh, Clarence Ashley session that was documented by Folkways Records, the, the springboard for Doc Watson's, uh, you know, national and internationally renowned career. But it was because of an affiliation with Tom Ashley, Clarence Tom Ashley, that uh, that Doc Watson became known by an outside record man, uh, Ralph Rinsler, who man, you know, led a management arrangement and then passed the management arrangement on to, uh, to others, but uh, continued to kind of promote Doc. And Doc's talent took off from there. But uh, direct connection between Bristol, Johnson City, and, and Doc Watson's music. It's interesting you talk about... Um... The, the big record labels keeping meticulous records of sales. I was wondering if they also kept pretty detailed records of the sessions because there's so much detail in these liner notes, not just about the context and the sessions, but like individual performers who, you know, may have turned up that day recorded and not done much. There's an awful lot of just rich, rich context in there. And I wondered like how easy that was to find or how much work it required to unearth all that. Yeah, a lot of that credit goes to, uh, you know, people such as Charles Wolfe and Tony Russell, who had been re- uh, researching the story of country music at its earliest stage. You know, they're in the 1920s for decades before this whole box set preparation uh, process took place. Um, of course, uh, Charles is no longer with us, but I, I did have the honor to work on a Bristol Sessions book with Charles and uh you know, he had copious uh, documentation that he had gathered. And a lot of that came directly from the Victor archives. Um, so, yeah, there were there were very there was great documentation taken at the time by uh, Ralph Peer or perhaps by his engineer um, as far as who showed up, you know, spellings of their names, you know, more or less accurate. Um, all those releases that uh were not ultimately released to the public. There were recordings of, you know, material that was, that did not find release. You know, that's all documented as well. Um, And then of course, with uh, Johnson city, many of the artists works quite, you know, the word is sounds judgmental. I don't mean it that way, but they were obscure musicians. They, they had no advanced reputation as, as artists. Uh, Many of those, uh, acts that recorded in Johnson City. So we are very much indebted to the fact that Frank Walker and his engineer kept very clear notes about who they were, where they came from. And uh, I will say that in the preparation of the box sets for Bear Family Records, we filled in a lot of gaps in, in the knowledge of these artists. Um, and that was particularly true with the Knoxville sessions. Tony Russell and I did a, a lot of what he often calls old-time archaeology, 
which is utilizing various kind of research engines to locate, uh, you know, courthouse records and, you know, birth, uh, you know, certificates, death certificates, all kinds of public documents. Um, we were able to tell a full story of virtually all the artists uh, that had recorded at these sessions by a combination of those recording companies having kept pretty good notes, mostly accurate, not always. Sometimes we had to undo inaccurate information, long stories to that, but many of those stories are told in the, in the liner notes. And then of course, 21st century, um, you know, deep dive research that uh, was conducted possible now because of the internet and, and access to uh, documents, which, you know, a couple of generations ago would have been required painstaking travel to, you know, county courthouses and such. We have access to that material today. And uh, so there was a great deal of research that was involved from our perspective in the 21st century, but we're also deeply grateful for what was done a hundred years ago in terms of documenting those, those artists. Possibly one thing that needs to be said for, for people who are unfamiliar with this story of the 1920s era location recording sessions is that all the recordings we have on these box sets were taken directly from existing, as in extant, 78s that still exist in people's collections today in the 21st century. Every last recording on all three of these box sets came from individual collections. There are no master recordings. You know, people mm. are surprised by that. Um, in a few cases, there are test pressings, which exist in archives. And we were able to use a few of those on the box set. But by and large, the, the masters for these 78s were destroyed during the war effort in the 1940s, melted you know, down and re mm. reused for military purposes. Um, Frank Walker, the producer of the Johnson City Sessions, was put in charge of utilizing the recording industry to serve the war effort. Um, and so he would have been part of that process of, of you know, not only um, allowing it to happen, but probably overseeing that process of recycling some of that material for the war effort. Um, Frank Walker also was in charge, the, the recorded sound industry, this is getting later in time, around to the time of the emergence of recorded bluegrass in the 40s. But there was a, a period there in the early 40s during the war when the only recordings that were authorized to be released were to fulfill the patriotic effort. And those recordings, uh, v, v records, they were often called, those were uh, and overseen, I guess is, is a good word for it, by Frank Walker, the, the uh, producer of the Johnson City Sessions. So he'd become a like Ralph Peer. Both those gentlemen were, were major players in the recorded sound period um, long past the 20s, but they, they, they had already carved out uh, stellar reputations you know, by the 20s when they came to Bristol or Johnson City. And, and, and they're both, uh, I, I think, equally de uh, deserving our respect and our attention. I have felt personally that uh, Walker has been somewhat overlooked or overshadowed by Ralph Peer. And I've done a lot, in, you know, I'm just speaking here out of a personal commitment and connection to uh, uh, Walker's work as a discoverer of, you know, many blues uh, recording artists uh, kind of gave them 
an opportunity to have their voices be heard. Bessie Smith and, and many others in the 20s. Um, he was one of the first people to record Cajun music in the late 20s, uh, jazz music in the 30s, people like Len Miller and others, Duke Ellington. Um, and then Frank Walker also was the person who managed, well, managed, I guess, kind of overs- oversaw, mentored, I guess is the right word, mentored the career of Hank Williams Sr. So famously, uh, Frank Walker called Hank Williams Sr. the hillbilly Shakespeare you know, which is a term that is affiliated with Hank Williams Sr. to this day. Frank Walker coined that term. Um, so I've been trying to do as much as I could as a scholar and as a fan to try to have people to appreciate uh, Walker's work. So alongside the already well-known uh, and legendary Bristol Sessions, I feel as if the, the John City Sessions are are equally worthy of our attention and equally fine from an aesthetic and historically influential sense of, of their importance. But the Knoxville sessions are much more obscure and were uh, in some ways a much more difficult project for Tony Russell and I to work on because the records were made in 1929 and 1930s, so right in the thick of the depression when uh, the, the uh, release schedule for the 29 Knoxville sessions was already well into the the uh, the depression and then the 30 uh Knoxville sessions recording sessions um you know 1930 was already when the the uh, record industry had tanked and yet uh, the producer Richard Voynow was his name he was he was a white jazz musician from Chicago who was dedicated to black music and wanted to do what he could to capture Appalachian black music. Uh, and he sought out Knoxville as the logical place where he could do that. And so that's the real contribution in some respects. I mean, there are others, but you know, the Knoxville sessions are a wonderful uh, location recording session in addition to the others we've talked about. But they're probably most impactful for having been the place where uh, African-American music in Appalachia was not not first documented because some of that had happened in Bristol and, and Johnson City, but most lovingly and completely documented. A whole community of African-American artists in East Knoxville was uh, recorded at the Knoxville Sessions and released on, on records. And so because of that, we, we can hear their voices, you know, their voices today. We, we know what they sounded like. We, uh, Tony and I were able to do some investigative uh, uh, you know, kind of interviewing and oral history effort to find out from the community uh, members who survived who those people were, because in the case of the Knoxville sessions, the notes that were taken were not as clear and as thorough. And so we had to do a lot more kind of digging into uh, the archives to figure out who these people were. But uh, we were able, working with uh, the community today, to find out the names and the identities and, you know, the stories of many of those artists. And um, Knoxville already had a, a, a handful of folks on, you know, already on the search for finding out more about the history of Knoxville being a big city. There was already, you know, a historical society and there was already some research that had been undertaken by people such as Jack Neely and Bradley Reeves and you know, some others. And uh, we were able to um, work with them to create uh, the Knoxville Sessions box set, which uh, upon its release in 2016, 
um, the city of Knoxville gave it a, a huge launch event attended by uh, over 10,000 people. So it's a, it's a, it's a sense, you know, to your listeners about that, uh, you know, it may, these projects may have been worked on in the isolation of one's office, you know, in terms of a research project, but they very much are community projects and they couldn't exist without the communities taking an interest in them and helping allow the research to be conducted, uh, you know, within the hearts and minds of the people who remembered the stories. Um, so it was uh, one last thought is I befriended a whole lot of people in the process of doing the three box sets. And of course the distillation of the three box sets can be heard on these single CD releases that are out now on bear family with new mastering and new notes. I want to emphasize there are brand new notes and all three of the single CD releases. It's not simply a pure distillation. It's a, it's, they're actually kind of, I, I call them uh, re- revisions, or they're they're kind of revisiting those sessions with uh, with new themes and, and new emphasis and new masters. So theoretically, one could have the box sets and still learn a great deal by getting the the single CD releases. Um, so, but I befriended a lot of family members of the musicians who recorded ninety plus years ago at these various sessions, and I'm. Delighted to you know say from a personal perspective that many of them are my friends. I I talk to them on a semi regular basis about their their great ancestors. You know they, they, these whether or not they were you know shall we say uh, influential artists at the level of Jimmy Rogers or the Carter family. Um, some of these other artists were influential in terms of their records were influential influencing people like Doc Watson and Jerry Garcia and Bob Dylan and others. And uh, so just knowing the, the, the grandchildren and the great grandchildren of these artists and uh, having an ongoing dialogue about how, what a gift it was, this music to the world is, is it, I think what it does is it, it keeps them, the stories fresh and keeps them reinterpreted in the present day, which I think is essential for historical work. It has to live and breathe in the present day. It has to be well documented and well well connected to the the real stories of what really happened. But it also has to have a living, breathing presence in the present day. And um, and we also, of course, try to teach this music in, in East Tennessee State University, where I, where I teach. Um, the, many of the students in our bluegrass old time and roots music studies program, and other students in the community. Um, listen to this music and learn from it and, and play it, uh, you know, in various kinds of events and among themselves and to the community. So it's very much a living presence today. And I think that's the joy of these, you know, this project of this collection of box sets is that I think there can be a danger when something is studied and researched and treated with an academic hat on that it becomes an artifact that is put in a case and we all look at it and we nod sage it and stroke our chins and go, yes, that's an important thing. But the joy of kind of going through all of this over the past few weeks, as I have, is that it is living, breathing music. And I tell you, know, I was reading all the notes and studying it and taking it seriously. But there's points where you just forget all that and you're just listening to a great song. And, you know, it's that um, the joy of all that work is that it does breathe some more life into something that has plenty of legs left in it. And and maybe that's maybe that's the hope for all this is that that rather than the Bristol sessions being seen as the big bang 
it's more like a, a sort of an open door invitation through which we can then go and explore the rest of it. Because we know the Bristol sessions, that becomes the, the touch point and the springboard. But then there's this whole like Narnia of other stuff behind the behind the door that you can go and experience. And there's some, some wonderful stuff in there. It's uh, the Bristol sessions are like a portal to everything that came afterwards. And the way I look at it, everything that came before. Um, and, and so I, I feel as if it's very important to see that, that two way direction there. Um, I, I, I love to uh, look at the roots of the, of the Bristol sessions. I love to look at the roots of the Johnson city sessions or the Knoxville sessions. And one, one can learn so much about not only music, but culture and, and, and human nature and society by studying the music and the lyrics and the, and the, the melodies and the harmonies and the ways and the attitudes behind the performances um, and the sense of humor behind much of it and the sense of pathos of some of the ballads and the more serious music, one, one can learn so much about human nature um, and it, it connects one to the past, but it also empowers one in the present. I always feel, uh, you know, m- much more connected to Appalachia where I live here in East Tennessee uh, through this music, uh, even as I feel as if this music is not limited by place. It's it's music of humanity. Just as I love to listen to international music from other continents, it, it enriches me as a human being. I feel as if this music has that impact to the people I know in other places. I mean, I have friends over the world who, who uh, love this music and uh, you know, um, Tony Russell, this great um, old-time music scholar, lives in London. You know, and and uh, uh, Bear Family Records is based in Germany. Um, many of the biggest fans and the the, the most um, insightful reviews of these sets have come from places like Australia and uh, Sweden and and uh, you know other places, Japan, places around the world. Um, so it's very much uh, the music of humanity. Um, but in the process of doing the deep dive study, I feel much more connected to the place in which I live. So it's a, it's an interesting, I don't know what to call it, a yin and yang kind of experience where it, it, it connects, one, connects one to the roots while also kind of uh, lofts one into a, a new a sense of understanding, you know, use the tree metaphor up into a, a new dimension up there. So it's living, breathing music. And it's, uh, it's uh, hearing the old recordings. They don't seem old to me when I listen to them. I hope they don't to others, but thanks to bear family, I think with the great masters, they don't seem detached from us through eroded sound. I mean, the, the, the sound, the, 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 uh, wearing out of the 78s is not an issue in the bear family release uh philosophy which because they use state-of-the-art technology to bring it to shape but they also and this is important they also firmly avoid in these new masters the remix uh kind of I call it with all the new Beatles remixes you know some people are, are really reacting against the concept that you could take historical music and just you know, relayer it and kind of, um, you know, reshape it in some way. Um, Bear family 
definitely doesn't ever want to do that. There's there's an integrity to their approach that uh, is is my personal philosophy, and I, I feel very happy to work with a company that believes in that. I feel as if you know the, the human mind is always curious to hear what can happen with music when it's remixed, and the technology makes it possible to happen. And I've heard some interesting experiments with our field recordings that have been uh, remixed into to new form. It's intellectually uh, challenging, and it's it's uh, maybe it's fun, um, but it is really important to honor the performance style, the 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 sensibility of the original artist who who made those records. Now, if people today want to interpret it differently, and that's all part of the constant change that's part of our our cultural uh, world, uh, that's fine, you know. That's but that's different. Uh, the historical records need to be understood in historical context, even as we enjoy them as uh, relevant in the present day. So that's that's the Bear family philosophy. I think it's borne out in their uh, more than 300 box sets. And it's certainly a philosophy I'm comfortable with as a historian. So um, it's walking that walk of, of honoring tradition and making it uh, discernible and, and, and living, breathing in the present day is, is the it's the challenge of, uh, of the work that I do. And I think of people I deeply respect in, in, in the historical uh, recorded sound um, research world, so people such as Tony Russell and before him, uh, you know, Charles Wolfe and others um, active in this world. Tony and, and uh, Charles are more or less contemporaries, so just to clarify, but uh, Tony's still doing masterful projects in historical music today. And it's a, it's a deep honor to work with him. And uh, as a team, I think we've, we, we hope to continue to do this sort of work of bringing location recording sessions to the public. And uh, there's plans in the offing to kind of expand our awareness that sure, the Bristol sessions were amazing, but there are all these other amazing location sessions. And let's, let's get to know them too, because the music from them, is uh, equally wonderful. It, you know, those records in their own way are equally wonderful. Well, I've really enjoyed going through a bit of that process with these these CDs. And, you know, I hope people do um, take some inspiration from this and go and not only hear maybe the Bristol sessions with New Ears, but, but hear these other sessions too. It's, you know, I, I, it's been fascinating for me just to spend some time with this music and, and get to know more about it. Um, and it's been fascinating talking to you about it. Thanks as always, Ted. It's been a real treat. Matt, it's always a pleasure, and thank you so much for what you do. and And it, it's it's so important to uh, have these conversations about the music that we we all love. And uh, it's it's a it's an opportunity to uh, have a deep dive into a, a, a kind of a complex conversation. So I appreciate your interest, and um, I've thought of as, aspects of the story that I've never really discussed before. And uh, that that's that's where you know. I'll, podcast is is a great invention because it's a it's a, it's a deep dialogue about things that matter so i appreciate all that you do and thank you for this opportunity bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by collins guitars and mandolins making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.